Okay, fellas. Chow time. Let's bring it in. It's showtime, right? It's showtime. Let's kick some ass. Hello and welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. My name is Show, as always, and uh, we're finally back to doing some more regular podcast episodes. You'll know that the last two episodes are, or rather were, on Avengers Endgame. They both contain two interviews. You know, I think I think it befit the... Uh, the uh, large record-breaking status of Avengers Endgame to have two episodes dedicated to it. One, a conversation with my friend Mark Stanush, and one with a conversation with another friend, Josh Goldberg. So if you want to check out some uh, Avengers Endgame coverage, I, I, I wholeheartedly encourage you to go check out those two episodes of the Showtime Movie Podcast. But for today, we're back doing some more regular stuff, more regular movie reviews. So before we get to the reviews today, and uh, just, I guess, as a table of contents, let's say, we're going to be doing Long Shot, the movie with Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron, uh, the romantic comedy, which is pretty funny. I enjoyed it. The uh, new, And then two newer ones, Detective Pikachu, uh, the first live action. I use live action in quotes because, I mean, of course, they're not real, but like CGI live action in the vein of Lion King in the Jungle Book. Uh, foray into uh, the Pokemon world, right? Pikachu is a Pokemon, of course. And the uh, last one on the episode today will be John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. I'm just going to say John Wick 3 because that's just, that's a mouthful of a title, you know? It's because it wasn't like it was just John Wick Chapter 3, like the second one was Chapter 2. It's John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. And I, and they only really say the word Parabellum once in the entire movie, and I still am not entirely sure it's a quite accurate translation, but whatever. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Uh, John Wick 3, De- Detective Pikachu, and Longshot. But, you know, before we get to the movies, I haven't done one of those little newsy things in a while. You know where we talk about some current events? And currently going on over in France is the Cannes Film Festival, which I believe is perhaps the only film festival that has a larger... Uh, what's the word? A larger, I guess, yeah, prestige, I guess, is the is the word I'm looking for. A larger glut of prestige that surrounds it, perhaps other than TIFF, right? I think if you had to rank the festival as what, it would probably be Cannes, TIFF, Sundance, probably Telluride, right? There's a bunch of other ones, I'm sure, as well, but those are the four that immediately come to mind, probably in that order. And anyways, uh, Cannes is, is out, and uh, over the past week we've been seeing some critical reaction mostly via twitter and other social media to the movies that they've been releasing over in france and uh, some movies are coming to theaters pretty soon actually so it's not like we're going to see some all of these movies at tiff we might see for example the lighthouse with willem dafoe and robert pattinson uh, who's actually just cast as batman unrelated to ken's but uh those two movies or that movie rather might be coming to tiff who knows right but the movie I wanted to talk about today, because it has a little more commercial appeal, I would say, than most other films, is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, of course, is Quentin Tarantino's ninth movie, and, you know, starring uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. And, of course, we've never seen these two major movie stars in a movie together before, and you know, I the first the first reviews have just come out today. Like, actually, I'm, I'm recording this at two thirty p.m. on uh, Tuesday, May twenty first, and the move the movie has just hit 
I guess the Twitter sphere, film Twitter, whatever you want to call it. And let me read you some of the let me read you some of the uh, initial tweets. Okay, so for example, and this is this is actually a nice compilation from IndieWire. Thanks thanks to Zach Scharf who wrote this for IndieWire. Very very uh, handy for him to compo- compile all the tweets into one place for me instead of having to go kind of scarf through Twitter. Right. So uh, here we go. Uh, the Guardian film critic Peter Bravshaw raves quote. Tarantino's brilliant exploitation black comedy Once Upon a Time in Hollywood finds a pulp fictionally redemptive take on the Manson nightmare. Shocking, gripping, dazzlingly shot in the celluloid primary colors of sky blue and sunset gold. End quote. And uh, yeah, that sounds kind of interesting. Sounds sounds initially uh, pretty promising. Tim Gerson, who's actually on our own very podcast when we were talking about Mission Impossible Fallout last year. Uh, Tim Gerson of Screen Daily was a bit more critical, writing, quote, like a lot of recent Tarantino, this is baggy, self-indulgent, fascinatingly its own thing, and ambitiously conceived. Of course, it's accomplished, sometimes dazzlingly so, but it ends up being as hit or miss as his last few. Another critic I like to read uh, Peter Howell, Peter Howell film. He's the f- chief film critic here in Toronto for the Toronto star. Once upon a time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino wants to tell us a story about Hollywood life at the time of the Manson family slayings of 69 and man, does he ever going from awestruck to WTF Brad Pitt to stand out his coolest role yet. And there's some other ones as well, right? Uh, Jason Gorber at Filmfest underscore CA, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, historically dubious, thematically brilliant, Quentin Tarantino finds his form in film that could win a palm d'or or be picketed by audiences, or maybe both. Thrilling, provocative, blackly comical, intensely unsettling masterwork. That's interesting. Honestly, I... Uh, I... I guess a lot of these tweets seem to be saying it's good, but I'm not sure what to make of it. It'll be a hit with some audiences. That seems to be the case with a lot of Quentin Tarantino movies. If I had to really, you know, really put a pin on it. Like I remember, for example, I didn't really care for, I did not really care for the hateful eight. For example, I, I truly did not. It was kind of self-indulgent. It was too long. You know, I, I mean, I think it's great to be as like an exercise in how long can Quentin Tarantino write a certain scene? But The Hateful Eight, I think, is my least favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. And yes, I've seen all. I mean, there's only nine or there's only eight, rather. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood will be the ninth. But right now there are only eight. And I think it's my my eighth favorite Quentin Tarantino film, <laughs> which is a bit of a shame, right? I feel like it was a little too a little too meandering. A little, yeah, self-indulgent is such a great word to describe The Hateful Eight. And if that's how it is with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think I'm going to be disappointed. But regardless, it'll be exciting to see what comes of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens with Brad Pitt, to be completely honest. You know, I mean, I know he's been in a movies with Quentin Tarantino. Uh, you know, he's gotten Oscar love before. He's been nominated for a couple a couple times for a couple different things. And he's a fantastic actor. I, I've always felt that Brad Pitt is, you know, and I've said this about uh, John Hamm, too, is that they're character actors stuck in a leading actor's body. If that makes sense, right? Because they're both incredibly attractive human beings. You know, they're like sex symbols in a way, almost. You know, they've both been around forever. We're talking about more Brad Pitt in the sense that you know, he's been in the news a lot for his his marriages and his relationships and, 
you know, I feel like if you look at some of his more critically acclaimed roles, I feel like the better roles he's had are the ones where he's done a little bit less, if that makes sense, right? I mean, certainly Benjamin Button, he was the star. and He's capable of being a star, but a lot of his really memorable roles, like Burn After Reading, are are smaller, more more focused roles. And perhaps that's just, you know, perhaps that's just the kind of movies he's, he's tried to branch out over a long period of time. But regardless, I guess I'm excited to see him go toe-to-toe with Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm excited to see him perhaps get nominated for some awards. Of course, it's always too early to say this movie is going to win this, this movie is going to win that. I remember so so vividly when I saw A Star is Born at the premiere at TIFF last year, right? Everyone came out of that theater, and similar to reading these tweets on uh, IndieWire and all over Twitter and so on, I remember so vividly we were reading all of these uh, tweets online. I had my own reaction tweet, and everyone, the buzz in the, in the audience was, Star is Born is the best picture favorite. You know, Lady Gaga is the best actress favorite. Um, Bradley Cooper, I almost said Leonardo DiCaprio again. Bradley Cooper is the best actor favorite, best director favorite, best, there's a best screenplay probably in there, best song, best score, best this, best that, right? And... Look what it ended up taking home. It got nominated for a bunch, but Bradley Cooper didn't even get nominated for Best Director, which, frankly, I thought was a bit of a snub, along with a lot of the women directors who didn't get nominated at all. But, I mean, that's another topic for another day. But, you know, I guess I just feel like it's way too early. I mean, what? It's it's just the, it's the end of May now, right? The Oscars, I feel like, just happened. So it's hard to look at the, these reactions and say, oh, man, Quentin Tarantino is a lock for Best Director nomination. But you know what? If there, isn't an, if there is a director who will be kind of rewarded by, you know, his peers, I feel like it's probably Quentin Tarantino, right? But whatever, we'll see. Again, I know, way, 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 way too early for this kind of thing. But at the same time... I uh, always like to ruminate and speculate on that kind of thing regardless. But okay, so that's the, that's uh, the early reaction to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, again, starring Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Margot Robbie is also in it. She plays Sharon Tate, who, of course, in real life was murdered by um, the Manson family, right? So we'll see if this will be another kind of revisionist uh, take on history, right? Because, of course, if you remember Inglorious Bastards, another QT flick, uh, it ends very differently with um, Brad Pitt's allied forces, you know, gunning down Hitler and the rest of the Nazis in a movie theater, right? So, of course, that is not how, if you're not up to date on your world history, that is not how <laughs> Adolf Hitler died. But So we'll see, we'll see if this ends up being another one of those kind of things, because I feel like it's implied that a lot of the uh, Quentin Tarantino movies, if not all of them, it's like the Quentin Tarantino cinematic universe, right, where all of them have ties to each other or nods to each other. So we'll see if uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood ends up being in that vein. Okay, so let's get to the uh, actual movie reviews of the Showtime Movie Podcast. As I mentioned, Longshot, Detective Pikachu, and John Wick 3. So let's start with the oldest one first. Okay, we're going to start with the oldest one first, the rom-com with Seth Rogen and Charlie Theron, Longshot. think of when I think of long shot is I don't know that I've ever really seen Charlize Theron in a comedic movie role you know it's not that I don't think 
or rather that I didn't think at the time that it wasn't possible for her. Because I think, you know, if you're an actor of her caliber, you can probably do anything you want, right? Like you can just do any role, any genre, anything you want, really, because Charlize Theron is that kind of actor, right? But... I say, you know, there's still something about certain actors who you associate with, you know, I, like I associate Charlize Theron more with Mad Max and more kind of, you know, your dangerous, badass kind of person than I do with a rom-com, right? And then you watch Longshot and you're just like, oh man, Charlize Theron is a badass and she is kind of a cool character, right? So, you know, I li- it was kind of fun to have your uh, expectations subverted, which is kind of funny to say that phrase nowadays. I feel like expectations being subverted is like the is a bad thing now, right? Because people are like, oh, The Last Jedi subverted my expectations in the worst way, or Game of Thrones subverted my expectations in the worst way. Like, whatever, okay? I don't, I don't really care about those kind of things. But it subverts your expectation in that I feel like Longshot, and of course starring Seth Rogen as well, directed by Jonathan Levine. Levine? Levine? I want to say Levine. And uh, Jonathan Levine, who actually worked with Seth Rogen in uh, 2011's 50-50. You guys remember that one. That that one had um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as well. But anyways, just uh, just Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron in Longshot for 2019. And the, the basic Coles note, right? The basic Coles note of Longshot is that Charlize Theron's Charlotte Fields character is the Secretary of State, the current Secretary of State in the United States government. She uh, works for, she's part of the cabinet for, I should say. Uh, and, I, and you know what? I'm forgetting his character's, her, his character's name, but the president is played by Bob Odenkirk. And you learn that, you know, from Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad and so on, very famous man, a very hilarious man. And you learn that Bob Odenkirk's president, is incompetent he's an idiot and he largely won on the strength of being in in the universe that the universe of this movie his president was the uh he played a fictional president on television and you know so he basically the idea is that he was a tv star that decided to run for president somehow won and then he became a very 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 popular first term president decided not to seek re-election and the whole movie is predicated on the fact this happens in the first five minutes the whole movie is predicated on the fact that charlotte uh secures his his not his nomination his um his endorsement, yes, wow, completely blanked on, uh, on that word, his endorsement, and the whole movie from there on out is Charlotte decides to consolidate her her base, she decides, she does some studies, some focus groups on what she's good at, what she's not good at, you know, and you learn that uh, one of the things that uh, audiences find about her is that she's not perhaps very funny, they need to punch up some of her communication skills, and enter Fred Flarsky, who is, pr- of course, portrayed by Seth Rogen, a very left-leaning journalist who, lear- upon learning that his uh, his small newspaper in Washington or New York, I think, wherever the hell he's from in the movie, uh, is being bought out by a very Fox News-type conglom- conglomerate And the uh, Roger Ailes kind of Rupert Murdoch kind of character who's played um, very, very entertainingly by Andy Serkis under just like a ton of fat suit makeup and so on. He uh, he, he basically quits out of principle and, you know, through uh, serendipity is runs into Charlotte. And you learn, I guess the whole idea is that 
Fred was once babysat by Charlotte when he was like 13 years old and she kind of remembers him and then she, of course you know they, she needs someone funny and kind of bombastic to punch up her speeches she hires Fred and as rom-coms do they fall in love along the way right so you know not like not the dumbest thing in the world right I mean I, I think really the when I think of long shot right so go back to the beginning I think of how this movie is kind of like a Hollywood leftist fantasy. And, I'm, I, and I certainly am not a conservative person. I would describe myself as left-leaning and left-so-bliss and left-that. But I, I guess what I'm saying is it was clearly meant as a comedy for people who sympathize and have um, left-leaning and democratic, if you're in the United States, or liberal, if you're in the, you're in the Canada, in here in Canada, uh, viewpoints, right? Because a lot of it is about how Charlotte, of course, is running as a Democrat, and, you know, how, like, the evils of the kind of right, and, you know, they even lampoon Fox News itself, and, like, kind of the Fox and Friends in the Morning type style TV show, and, you know, a lot, a lot of comedians, a lot of famous people, Bob Odenkirk, we mentioned Andy Serkos already, um, you know, there's a great, there are some great, uh, kind of, I don't want to say cameo, but some great kind of smaller appearances by O'Shea Jackson and Alexander Skarsgård and uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr., I believe is his full name, is the son of uh, Ice Cube, actually, right? And we saw him in Straight Outta Compton. I want to say he was in Godzilla, or I think, as a soldier, I want to say. Maybe it was another movie I'm thinking of. Maybe it was the, maybe it was, no, you know what, it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't Godzilla, it was Kong Skull Island, but I think that means he's in the Godzilla universe, right? I'm not, we'll see if he's in Godzilla King of Monsters uh, coming up soon. I'm not actually sure, to be completely honest, but regardless, back to Longshot, O'Shea Jackson Jr. is uh, Fred's best friend. I, I believe they were college roommates in the universe of the movie, and he has this kind of ambiguously successful job. I have no idea what he actually does, but he clearly is powerful enough to give everyone the day off. And, you know, he's, he's a fun best friend character and they have some very entertaining dialogue. And Alexander Skarsgård, much to my delight, is the Canadian prime minister who you learn that Charlotte has a kind of long-standing flirtation with and it's kind of one of those things that you know it's because you know he's an attractive man and she's an attractive woman so they kind of like the tabloids kind of play it up like oh this is a united states secretary of state is she into the canadian prime minister it's that kind of thing right so yeah it's a it's a very and and of course as you might imagine it's a romantic comedy so it works out right it's not a spoiler for me to say that it works out for fred and it works out for charlotte i mean as a as a couple right they work out together even though you might think how does this schlubby foul-mouthed journalist get together with this elegant sexy badass secretary of state right how does that work out we don't know but uh or i uh, you know you don't know because you haven't seen the movie but i mean in real life that probably i feel like feel comfortable in saying would not work out especially in the climax of the movie the way the climax of the movie uh kind of takes off i don't want to spoil it because you know they get together but i think the way they get together is very entertaining for me at least and i think it was, it was a source of great amusement to the audience so I, if you haven't seen it i would recommend going and giving it a chance because it's very entertaining um there's some really great shots in the movie and a lot of great music right a lot of like you know the for example in rom-coms they have those montages right where you know the characters get to know each other and in the, in the context of a political candidate running for office and a journalist trying to punch up her speeches how do you you insert that montage and so the idea was that in order they the the pause to you is that in order for fred to write charlotte's speeches he needs to know her so he he sits down with her to do a little bit of interviewing time 
And a lot of the interviews take place over these different montages in different parts of the world. And they're kind of watching Game of Thrones together. They're, you know, watching Marvel movies together. They're talking about pop culture events. They're talking about songs they like, things they didn't like, so on. And it's very cute, honestly. It's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to really find any fault with this movie other than this would never happen in a million bazillion years. Because no successful woman who is running for president would honestly saddle themselves to someone like Fred when they know they can, you know, be elected president and change the world for the better, right? So that's the only perhaps part I, you know, and I think it's also important to ask the question, like, would a successful female candidate for running for office, an office like the United, office of the uh, United States president, would this person necessarily even want a relationship, right? And I don't know if the movie really ever goes out of its way to say definitively that Charlotte was looking for someone, right? Now, maybe that's the whole point of a romantic comedy. Oh, love finds you when you least expect it. And that's fair. I think that's fair. But at the same time, I think we should be cognizant as viewers that there's in a way this story could have been told. Like, there would have been, there's a cool kind of march of eyes. Maybe, I don't want to say Manchurian Candidate because that's a different kind of political story. I was just thinking about Denzel Washington for some reason. But there's a, there's a cool actual political movie about votes and elections that's not a rom-com where it easily could have been about charlotte field's uh character right it could have easily been about that but you know it's, it's a comedy so this is what we are living with but I, I all i'm saying is that there's a cool movie in there somewhere where you know it has nothing to do with her being attached to this guy and more having to do with you know just Charlotte Field is a character, right? But anyways, the movie has some great comedic moments. There's a great moment where they where they decide to go on a drug bender. There's some great moments where uh, on that drug bender, Charlotte Charlotte Fields uh, slash Charlize Theron negotiates the return of a hostage. You know, they, all the sorts of crazy things like that. And uh, the movie is all the better for it because you know what, Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen have amazing chemistry together. And I think no matter what the plot is about, that's all that really matters for a romantic comedy. And they sell it really, 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 really well. Okay, so if you like romantic comedies, I think you will likely like Longshot. If you're really right-leaning, you might also not like Longshot. I will say that much, but you know what? Suspend your disbelief, and there is a bit of a kind of, I don't want to say redemption if you're someone who like leans more to the right, but you, there's a bit of an, an interesting conversation about perspective that takes place right near the end of the movie. It's not very long, but I thought it was kind of, you know, all, considering the movie goes out of its way to kind of poop on the right, I feel like it was kind of cool to... I mean, I don't want to say cool because I really don't agree with a lot of the stuff the right does. I don't want to try, try not to bring too many politics into my podcast. I really don't agree with virtually anything the right does. But I thought it was interesting that the movie, for being a Hollywood left fantasy and for having all these people like Seth Rogen and Charlie Theron, who in real life have, you know, done activism things for the left. I thought it was interesting that it had that in it at all. And I, and I wonder why that is. But... Regardless, I think this movie is pretty accessible, it's pretty funny, and if you like romantic comedies, it's hard not to bet against Longshot. Okay, so Longshot came out a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's been a, I know it's been a, lo- a little while since I've done an episode, so I, I, I wanted to squeeze in a couple more movies, you know. So I, I actually was going to leave out Longshot and just do Detective Pikachu and John Wick 3, but I decided that, you know what, Longshot was big enough, I enjoyed it enough, and I think other people would enjoy it too if we did a quick review on that. So that was about 10 minutes on Longshot. So let's move on to the two episodes I want to spend the bulk of this episode on. And, uh, you know, I wrote some reviews for okcool.ca, so if you've read those, my 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 chat here will be largely similar, but you know I you know it won't take too much of your time. So 
With this next movie, it's the first foray, as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, into CGI slash live action telling of stories in the Pokemon universe. It's very interesting, uh, starring Ryan Reynolds and Justice Smith. Uh, here is my review of Pokemon Detective Pikachu. You know, honestly, I mentioned the OK Cool reviews. I cannot tell you how many times I misspelled the word detective. And I mean, what I'm saying is I, I type pretty fast. It's not a brag or anything. But when you type fast, I think you, it's easy to make a mistake. And honest to God, I, I can't tell you how many times I put a C instead of a V in that last part of detective so many times. My, Especially when you're writing Pikachu afterwards. Anyways, kind of a weird complaint. I know, right? So hashtag first world problem, right? But... Regardless, um, Detective Pikachu, you know, Pokemon is, I guess Pokemon in general is one of the world's more recognizable prop, pop culture properties probably ever, right? I mean, certainly in the in the age of, you know, pop culture and the age of social media and the age of instant information, you, you don't have to be an expert in movies or an expert in, in video games or an expert in whatever to know what Pikachu is, right? I think Pikachu is arguably the world's most recognizable Pokemon. Pokemon to the point where I think that you just look at him and you're like, oh, it's a Pokemon. Like everyone from my mom, even to I think some like my my older relatives and so on, they all know what that Pikachu is a Pokemon and that Pokemon is a video game, right? And even if you don't, if you even if you know nothing else apart from those two facts, then you are the audience for Detective Pikachu. <laughs> Does that make sense? Because, I mean, look, people who listen to podcasts and people who watch movies and people who play video games are probably going to see Detective Pikachu, which is why the movie made so much money in its first weekend or so, right? Because, look, we've never had a live-action Pokemon version before, and here we go, right? No, it is not related. I mean, not related. I, I shouldn't say not related at all. It's certainly partially related to the adventures of the Pokemon cartoon and certainly the video games that happened, like, 20-plus years ago, right? But Detective Pikachu is a, is a present day adventure with present day characters and here's the thing that I found interesting in talking to people about Detective Pikachu a lot of people who again are not necessarily video game fans or Pokemon fans or whatever a lot of people seem to think that the Pikachu in this movie is the same Pikachu that we saw in the cartoon in the mid to, mid to late 90s which fascinates me because I guess I guess for me, it's it's like, oh, duh, idiot. That's not the same Pikachu. There are millions of Pikachus, dummy. But, you know, I, I then I thought about it. I'm like, oh, not a lot of people would necessarily know that. Because, I mean, I mean, at least in the cartoon, you really only ever see the one Pikachu, really, from episode to episode. Like, yeah, maybe the one that Ash has interacts with. Anyways, like, I don't want to get too deep into Pikachus and versus, you know, as a race kind of thing, as a Pokemon, and a, a genus of Pokemon. I don't really know what it is, right? It's interesting to me, right? You think that Pikachu and, like, Dragonite are, same, are, are both Pokemon in the same way that, like, LeBron James and Danny DeVito are both human beings? It's, like, kind of weird to me, right? But, okay, whatever. That, that, that'll lead me down a whole other topic. But Detective Pikachu 
is not related in 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 the in the immediacy to the events of Pokemon Red and Blue or to the cartoon from 20 years ago. Okay, that's all I really wanted to get to. Pikachu is still the frame of reference for the whole movie, right? Because I mean, if the movie is called Detective Pikachu, and here's the plot in a nutshell, right? Tim Goodman, who is Justice Smith, and I really have only ever seen Justice Smith personally in Jurassic World 2, wasn't a huge fan of him in that movie, but he does he has a lot more to do in this movie in Detective Pikachu other than just screaming uh, with Bryce Dallas Howard, basically, right? So Tim Goodman arrives in Rhyme City, which is a place here to uh, unknown, I guess. I have no idea where Rhyme City is. It's not really in any, in any of the regions. And uh, you learn that Rhyme City is this Pokemon paradise founded by the Clifford family. And it's a place where Pokemon live outside of the Pokeballs, right? Instead of just living in your belt kind of thing, they all walk around with you. They're part of the world, right? So he receives news that his father, his estranged father, detective for the Rhyme City Police Department, has died. And Tim goes to his father's apartment to make a final arrangements and kind of clean the place up. And while he's there, he runs into his father's Pokemon partner, who is, as you might imagine, Pikachu, voiced by Deadpool's Ryan Reynolds, Canada's Ryan Reynolds, I will say. You know, I think uh, that's one thing I saw on Twitter today. You know, nobody, you know, they have those tweets that says, like, nobody, colon, nothing. And then it's like, me, that actor's Canadian. That, <laughs> I saw that today and I laughed because I am totally that person. But regardless, the trailer, the trailers imply uh, that Pikachu and Tim can understand one another. And they, they do unveil it during, dur- during the film. It does make sense, even if it is a little silly and a little kind of laughable, I thought. But a little confusing, too, I thought. It was kind of weird. I don't know if it was just the way they explained it, it was kind of strange to me. Like, it left me with more questions than answers. But regardless... The talking Pikachu and Tim uh, begin a journey to unravel these circumstances surrounding, you know, the senior Goodman's uh, death, right? And, you know, there's a bit of a conspiracy involved. Is he dead? I don't know, right? But, and that's kind of the general, and look, you you gotta remember that Detective Pikachu, and I had to remember this too when I was watching it and reading, writing the review and even recording this episode, so I think it's probably why I wanted to mention it. You got to remember this movie is for children, right? It's it's for adults, yes, and it's it's banking on the fact that you and I, if you've played uh, Pokemon when you were younger, any of the Pokemon games, that you will be kind of fueled by nostalgia and will want to go see this film, right? That's what Nintendo and that's what the film company is banking on, right? So there are some flaws with it. I think real flaws... But still, it's an entertaining film, right? Like, for example, Ryan Reynolds, he brings it with the voice acting in Pikachu, right? I mean, look, if you want to boil it down, his version of Pikachu is essentially Deadpool, but for children. With it, which is to say, no, like, dick jokes, no cussing, but just, like, no, you know, like, n- none of that stuff. Nothing inappropriate, but just a lot of jokes about, like, have you ever talked to women before, kid? Or, you know, like, I need coffee. I love coffee. Or just, like, a lot of really weird kind of offbeat jokes, but they're still really funny, right? And uh, the mile-a-minute jokes and gags will be familiar to anyone who's a fan of Ryan Reynolds, and it's easily one of the highlights of the film as a whole. But I would respectfully submit that even above Ryan Reynolds' star power, because he's probably an A-list celebrity. He's like at the top of the movie food chain right now, right? I would argue that the real celebrities of this movie are the Pokemon themselves. Like, you know, you see Pikachu, Squirtle, Bulbasaur, Charmander. You see later a Charizard. You see Psyduck a lot, Machamp, Ditto, Snorlax, Gyarados, Gengar, a whole bunch of them. And, I mean, I named the ones from G1 mainly because I don't really know the Pokemon from the later generations, I admit. But, you know, it's it's exciting to see for fans of the franchise, like myself, and they look so real. Like, I know they're not real, but there are scenes in the movie where I go, damn, that's really cool because they look breathtakingly real and they're so lovingly animated, you know? Like, the visuals of 
Rhyme City in general, and as you know, like I mentioned, Pokeball free plays where these monsters can roam around with their partners at will. You know, it's a treat to see. You know, it's it's kind of like a visually kind of reminds me, even though I've never been to either of these places. Funnily enough, it reminds me from all the movies I've seen as a mix of London and Tokyo. And with, with just Pokemon stuffed into every corner, right? Like there's a shop you walk by, one of the guys walks by, why not donuts? Or there's a coffee shop where a Ludicolo, I think it's called, and it's like serving coffee and so on like that, right? So there, and there are some fun references to the original Kanto region cartoon thing. You know, like Reynolds, Ryan Reynolds' Pikachu sings the original uh, theme song, you know, I want to be the very best, like no one ever was. He sings that kind of in a fun way at some point. I just I think that the it's it's just that everything that's not the Pokemon kind of is mediocre, you know. Like the pure focus on the fan service is the great is the film's greatest success, and it's also the film's greatest downfall because outside of the Pokemon, it's kind of lacking, right? Like for example, Tim gets the news about his father dying at the very beginning of the movie, and he gets right he gets right on to Rhyme City, and there nothing. And I know the whole idea is that his father and him are estranged, but Considering later in the movie, he's like crying about his dad. And he didn't get to tell him I loved him. And it's like, the film doesn't really care about that. They move on from the father thing so quickly because Detective Pikachu doesn't really care about Tim's feelings for his dad, right? It just wants him to meet the Detective Pikachu character as soon as humanly possible, right? Like, for example, Detective Pikachu could have some, had some potential to operate as a kind of like a kid's version of a noir thriller, right? Like still fan servicey and fun, but still engaging with detective movie things, right? Like the female lead who, you know, is a young intern turn badass reporter. Then she's like kind of, there's a bit of a joke about how she writes like listicles and she writes like top 10 list for Pokemon for like the, the, I forget what their name of the network is called, but for like the CNN of the, of the rhyme city. Right. And by the end, of, by the next scene, we see her, and she's always shifted back to like the gee whiz, young kid, Pokemon trainer. And then by the end of the movie, she's just she's not even a reporter barely anymore. Like she's about to go on camera, and then they just completely rob her of that moment, and she becomes a standard love interest for Tim. And that's it, right? I mean, look, the movie is called Detective Pikachu, and even the actual detective work in the film largely boils down to watching Tim and Pikachu watching holographic camera footage that just has the, has the mysteries and confusion explained directly to the viewer, and then, bam, the climax happens with Mewtwo, and then, bam, the movie's over, right? And you know what even, honestly, even more disappointing was that, was that the movie's trailer really kind of build Rhyme City as where the, you know, the, maybe they'd be going into the skulky, skulking around to the little kind of grimy, secretive corners of Rhyme City, you know, like doing actual detective work, kind of Blade Runner-esque, you know, while where all these Pokemon are lurking everywhere and trying to foil them, and maybe there's a Pokemon battle in there too. And you know what? After the first, like, half an hour of the movie... Viewers are then taken completely out of Rhyme City to just watch Tim and Pikachu wander around a forest and wander around sterile labs, and then they return to Rhyme City for like 10 minutes and the movie ends, right? It's just kind of... It's just it's just some strange decision making because there was so much like stuff they could mine there to make it actually interesting, and they decided to do that instead, right? And now here's the thing. Like I said at the beginning, it's still a kid's movie, right? It tries to present itself to adults who have this nostalgia for their favorite Pokemon, and they capitalize on that by bringing them to life in a really, really, really cool way. So if that's all you're there to see and you're hoping for anything else as an add-on, then you know what? Your ticket was worth it, right? Because that's what you get, and you don't get it a lot, a lot, but you get a, bit, a bunch of it, enough, I think, to make it worth it, right? And I think the worst thing about Detective Pikachu is that 
again, outside of the Pokemon, it's just largely forgettable. It's not really good, nor is it really all that bad, honestly. It's just nothing really interesting happens outside of seeing the Pokemon just, like, you know, say Squirrel and Bulbasaur and so on. But I think it's implied that there will be more movies. It made enough money to make more movies. And now that they have all this out of the way, they could easily do something cooler in the future. So I think that's probably what's going to happen. So look, if you are interested in Pokemon in any way, shape, or form, or if you have kids who might be interested in Pokemon in any way, shape, or form, I think Detective Pikachu is at least worth a watch. You know, going into this summer, there was a weird... It was weird for me because there's a lot of movies coming out. I mean, I think there's a movie probably at least every week that I want to see, and we'll talk about it on the podcast, certainly. But, you know, if, if I had to list my top five most anticipated movies of the summer, one was definitely Avengers. And I think four and five are probably, maybe three, four, or five are probably like Godzilla, let's say Aladdin and the Lion King, right? And I think maybe Spider-Man would be number six if I had to, if I had to put it on their top 10 list somewhere. But number two was easily John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum, which, as I mentioned, we will just call John Wick 3. And... I think it's because the first John Wick movie had so many interesting set pieces, such a simple premise. You know, Keanu Reeves is so likable, and it, it, it had this lore, this kind of rich alternate universe, alternate history, alternate Earth, world, whatever you want to call it, lore, where they did all sorts of interesting things. And John Wick 3, now that it's out... I can safely say builds on that. So why don't we get to the review and we can talk a little more about it in, a, in, in depth. So here is my review of John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. Okay, look, it's been a couple days since I have seen John Wick 3, and initially I had said it was the best in the series, and I, I think I've come down off that a little bit. I've seen it again since, and I want to say that John Wick 3 is the second best movie in the series. Second best because the first, the first one is obviously the best one still. The first one does an amazing job of telling its story with very few, very little dialogue from John Wick himself. Lots of action. You know, it, it kind of informs how you feel about John Wick through the eyes and lens of every other character, whether it's the main villain, whether it's the side guys, whether it's like your throwaway assassins. Everyone has heard of John Wick, except for you, the viewer. You don't know who John Wick is. You only see him in the lens of a grieving husband whose wife has just passed away due to, you know, some like a terminal illness, cancer or something like that. Right. So. You and I, when that movie starts, we don't know anything about John Wick, whereas everyone else, literally everyone else does, right? And so you find out piece by piece why people are so afraid of it. And at the end of the movie, not, you're not afraid of John. You are thoroughly impressed by this ultimate badass doing all these really cool things and saying all these cool things as well. And, you know, that's why I think the first John Wick, in addition to all the rich lore it set up about the world everyone lived in and the assassins and the high table and the continentals and, you know, where can people could do business and the other assassins and his friends and family, you know, all this stuff, all the lore and, and backstory that was so, so expertly created just for this series is why people love John Wick so much. And I think that John Wick 2, right, John Wick 2 does something like John Wick 2 
enhances that certainly but i think because of the way it, it's kind of like the middle you, i think we all were assuming this is a trilogy it's not actually we just heard news i think earlier today or when it was last night actually that john wick 4 is coming out in 2021 so you know if this becomes the fast and furious movies where they just make them forever and as long as they're good i'm okay with that but i guess what i was going to say is that john wick 2 Though it enhances the story of the initial John Wick, it, you know, it's kind of like you have to remember that all the sequels stand on the shoulders of the original, right? And John Wick 2 stands on the shoulders of the first one, but how much taller does it really make you, right? Not a lot, in my opinion, right? Because, like I said, I was going to say, it's the, it's the kind of middle tier of a pyramid. It's not the point, nor is it the base. So it's like, how much really does it make that pyramid larger? How much does it make you taller if it's standing on your shoulders? And... John Wick Chapter 3, I feel like, not quite the point. We're getting there. We're getting to the point, but it makes that person taller. Does that make sense? It, ma- it stands on the shoulders of 2 and 1, but it makes it, makes it almost as tall as 1 by itself, right? Because that's how good it is. It enhances the lore. It makes all sorts of interesting things, all my, my interesting choices. has some amazing action scenes. I do think that the initial action scenes the one in the library and the one in the knife shop and you can imagine what they fight with those two action scenes i think are the pinnacle of john wick 3 so it's kind of unfortunate that it starts out so high and then slowly kind of goes down from there but still pretty good uh it's just you know we we we, we left off chapter two with wick killing one of his guys i believe his name was santino d'antonio and he was ju- he just been appointed to the high table not only does he kill a member of the high table but he kills him on the grounds of the continental like i said where business cannot be conducted he broke this sacred of rule most sacred of rules and as a result was banned from all services complete with a 14 million dollar bounty on his head so that's where we start with chapter three you learn that uh, Winston, played by Ian McShane, who is the manager of the New York Continental, gave John an hour head start before the excommunicado, where all services are banned to him. Um, give him an hour's head start before the uh, the ban came down. And for for that, for for giving him safe haven, uh, Winston and the Bowery King, who's played by Lawrence Fishburne in number two, who also helped John escape and get back to kill Santino, uh, you know, at the end of the at the end of John Wick two are uh, paid a visit by a uh, mysterious adjudicator, a high-table adjudicator who has come to make sure that they are uh, always in fidelity to the high table and punishes them accordingly. And that's kind of a part of the story as well. But really, it's about John Wick trying to survive a $14 million bounty on his head in a world where literally everyone, it seems, is an assassin of some kind, right? So the general plot is that John decides to seek out help in order to escape the judgment of the high table, right? And one of those people that helps him is the uh, ageless Halle Berry. You know, we haven't seen Halle Berry in a movie in quite some time. And I'll say this, the series of John Wick has been reluctant to put anyone, really any character on the same pedestal in terms of action and capability as John Wick himself. You know, even we saw Ruby Rose, for example, as the lethal assassin. We saw Common as another assassin, both in John Wick 2. And Common was kind of close to him, but I feel like after a little while, John did dispose of him. Same with Ruby Rose. And Sophia's character, Sophia, Holly Berry's character, is perhaps the only one to come even close. More so than Common ever did. And you learn her connection with John in a past life. You know, give me, honestly, she's a badass. She's such a badass. She has these two awesome dogs. You know, like, give me a Sophia standalone John Wick movie, whether it's a prequel or otherwise, and I am set, right? Even if that doesn't happen, by the way, we are all get already getting a series, I think produced by stars, same people who did Black Sails, which is awesome. We're getting a series based on the Continental series of hotels. So you want to check that out. There's lots of information on the internet about the Continental Hotel. 
So I'm really hoping that Sophia, considering her own connection to the Continental Hotels, makes an appearance. Would be really cool. Anyway, so other actors, I mentioned Ian McShane, I mentioned Lauren Fishburne, Lawrence Fishburne, uh, Lance Reddick returns. He's, uh, it's kind of cool to see his concierge. His concierge's name is, is spelled C-H-A-R-O-N, which I always thought was pronounced Charon or Charon, which is the name, which is a Pluto's moon, if you remember correctly. And Charon or Charon is the name of the person in like Greek or Greek legends, Greek and Roman legends, who ferries the dead to Hades, right? To the underworld. He's like the, you know, the skeletal ferryman who takes souls to the other side, right? And they pronounce it in the movie Charon. <laughs> Very French, right? Uh, Ian McShane says Charon a lot about Lance Reddick's uh, character. Cool that Sharon is given a little more to do in this one. He before was just limited to saying hello and goodbye to John Wick at the front desk, but now he actually is given a little more to do. Uh, Mark DeCasco says joins the proceedings as a fellow assassin. Zero, kind of a fun name. He 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 proves not to be just fun to watch, but also genuinely funny. It was kind of cool. He 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 turns out to be a big John Wick fanboy. That was kind of fun, and. Uh, also, honorable mention, gotta mention this, Yayan Rohian and Sisab Arif Rahman, two of the uh, more familiar faces in the Raid and Raid 2, uh, one of the better action movies, series, franchises of the last several years. Actually, funnily enough, the original John Wick and the Raid 2 were released in 2014, both of them. So, you know, two of, a good, good year for action movies, I guess, because the Raid 2 is absolutely amazing. I mentioned before on the, one of the podcast uh, endings or beginnings or whatever that we're going to do a series this summer, maybe when it slows down a little bit about the best action movie series, best action movie, either individual ones or series of all time. And uh, I would submit that the raid slash the raid two is in there. I, I would say uh, maybe John Wick is in there too. Mission impossible probably too. But anyways, it was cool to get a crossover from another badass action series. Cause those guys are so good and they were un- underutilized. I feel like in uh, star Wars and the force awakens. Um, but, uh, they were great in the, in John Wick Chapter 3, right? So the action is tremendous as usual. I mentioned that in that fight in the library. It even has a sh- and also a famous basketball player, isn't it? Kind of funny. Uh, there's a fight in the knife shop. There's on cars, on streets, in factories, on horseback, on motorcycle. Like, it's just... The, the it's just so much fun it's so much fun and, and Chad, uh, Chad Stahelski who's the director and a former stunt coordinator he showcases his background with the increasingly complicated stunt work and it's really cool honestly so it, there's not a lot other uh, you know I think I did mention there are some things I didn't really care for I think the only real things were that you know you learn that John travels to Morocco not just to meet Sophia, but to meet the elder, who's the only character who exists above the high table and the elder is the one who manages to kind of make things a little easier for John to get back into America to complete his mission. And you learn, and I think my only really problem with the elder was that he's supposed to be the only character above the mysterious high table. And in the end, it wasn't really that important. Not that like, not that he is not important, but it was downplayed. So, or it was, it was, it was, let's say emphasized so much that when they actually meet the elder, it was a little underwhelming. It was, it was kind of strange. It was, it was a little weird to experience because you thought it was going to be this really cool moment. And it was like, Oh, that's who it is. It's a young 30 something looking guy, not this old mysterious guy. And he just doesn't have anything visually interesting about him. There's a typical kind of Bedouin thing in the middle of the desert and nothing really special about it. it. It was weird because all the other characters stand out in some way, right? Like Winston stands out. The Bowery King stands out. 
you meet the director of the ballerina, the the ballet school rather, where you learn John Wick grew up. You know, she looks. It was Angelica Huston. She looks visually interesting. You know, Mark Dacascos looks visually interesting. Common and Ruby Rose in, in Chapter Two looked visually interesting. John Linguizamo in Chapter One looked visually interesting. You know, like all of everyone had something distinctive about them, really, except for the Elder, which is weird because he's supposed to be the be all end all of the assassin world. And here you go. It's just like, oh, okay, just just some guy, just some guy, I guess. That was, I think, one of my biggest problems with it. I think that my other big problem was, was that. It ends on a cliffhanger, and I don't really care for cliffhangers, so I think that's just a general thing for me uh, on, on the whole, right? Like, nothing really specifically against John Wick 3, but I guess I, I assumed that the John Wick story, I mean, perhaps this is my own fault for assuming, but I assumed it was wrapping up with this movie, and it's not. We're getting a fourth one, and I wouldn't be surprised if we got a fifth one as well. I think they're creating a series, and perhaps maybe I would I, that's to be expected considering how popular they are and considering the television show, but... On the flip side, to play Devil's Advocate, I figured considering the television show that this would be the end of John Wick, and it's not by a long shot. So I guess we'll see what Chapter 4 brings us in uh, May of 2021. But you know what? I, I don't think that John Wick Chapter 3 is going to be winning any action movie awards, let's say. But I do think that, well, I, 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 I will go back and circle around back to the beginning of this review and say that while I still think that John Wick 1 is the best one so far. John Wick 3 is a close second, and I think anyone who is entertained by action movies, by fun, you know, engaging, creative sequences, I think that's the the most, the word, the highest praise I can give to John Wick 3 is that it's so creative. Everything about it is is different. You know, I, I do think maybe they missed an opportunity to have Carrie Ann Moss complete the Matrix uh uh, Matrix Trinity, dare I say? No, bad joke. But she, she it almost looks like the adjudicator role, who's this kind of white woman with a shaved head and very serious looking. You know, it, I kind of thought that maybe she, that, that role was made for Carrie Ann Moss and they did the recast her at the last minute. I don't think that was actually the case, but it looks like Carrie Ann Moss could be related to that woman. So we'll see if she actually makes an appearance in number four. It'd be cool to get the Matrix crew back together. Maybe even Hugo Weaving could be in there somewhere. But regardless, if you like action movies, you will love John Wick 3. So there's not much else I can say then go see it all right so that is another episode of the showtime movie podcast i did three movies and a little bit of a spiel on once upon a time in hollywood so we're running a little long in this episode so we'll wrap up right now uh the quick let's look at a quick schedule i know i've done this before i'll probably do this as the as the summer continues we'll do this uh, uh for a couple minutes or a couple seconds every at the end of every episode just so you know what's coming up on the horizon so uh this week actually i'll probably see this movie next week when my girlfriend comes back from vacation because I know she really wanted to see it. So I'll, just, I'll wait for her to see it uh, so it don't, not, doesn't get a little spoiled. But, I mean, we all know what's going to happen. Aladdin, of course, is what I'm talking about. Aladdin comes out on Friday the 24th. Brightburn and Booksmart also come out on the 24th. Uh, Godzilla, King of Monsters, and Rocketman come out on the, on, uh, the 31st. Uh, let's see. Uh, June 7th, Dark Phoenix, X-Men, Dark Phoenix, and The Secret Life of Pets 2. That's the following week. The following, a week after that, Men in Black International on the June 14th. Uh, on June 21st, Toy Story 4. On June 28th, uh, yesterday, that movie about the Beatles not existing, right? Then we get into July and we get movies like Spider-Man Far From Home, Stuber, The Lion King, and then we get actually to the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at the, uh, end, of, at the end of July, right? So 
it's not a long time until these movies from Cannes are starting to hit theaters. So that's what's on the horizon. But you know what? Since I've taken so much of your time, thank you so much for listening. I always appreciate it. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at SNSAlley, S-N-S-A-L-L-I, or uh, at Showtime Movies. That's always a fun way to get in touch. I love having conversations with you guys about movies. But again, you've been listening to the Showtime Movie Podcast. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Have a great night. It's a wild jungle outside.